Hello and welcome to episode 16 of Prog Notes. My name is Destin. And I'm Drew. And today we are listening to Close to the Edge by Yes. We are here to educate and hopefully inspire our listeners to uncover and learn about progressive rock by listening and talking about albums from the progressive rock archives that you may have never heard of or want to learn more about. We would like to take this opportunity to thank all of our listeners who have been listening to all of the episodes. And if you could please subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Instagram at prog underscore notes, that would be excellent so that you can always be notified when yes. we launch a new episode. Right? Right, Destin. 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 Of course. I'm here. Destin. I'm here with you. Today's special. Do you know why today is special? I do know why it's special, but tell Okay, well, I'm going to tell... I'm going to tell the, the audience why it's special so it's they know special. what we're talking about. Okay, do that. Okay? Today is special because it is the one-year anniversary of Prognotes. Yes. Yeah. The studio oh, audience is very excited about this. Today. Studio, yeah, exactly. The studio audience is very excited about this. Yeah. Well, we, we, we now have uh, over 7,000 listens on the show. 7,000. Pretty... It's pretty amazing. It, it's, been a, it's, it's been so fun, so much fun, and we really appreciate you reaching out and communicating with us the albums you would like to hear as well as your feedback on the show too please and please please continue to do this so we can continue to get better and bring better episodes yeah and we love we love the suggestions too it's always interesting for us to see what you guys suggest and uh we will we will definitely be be adding some of those suggestions into the mix so yes uh so thank you yes but for now let's stick too close to the edge by yes let's talk a little bit about (laughs) this record uh so uh, so Close to the Edge is the fifth studio album released by the English progressive rock band, Yes. Uh, it was released around this time, actually, Drew, of the month, September 13th, 1972. It is their last album of the 1970s to feature their original drummer, Bill Bruford, before he left to join King Crimson. So on this record, Yes includes John Anderson on his vocals, Steve Howe on guitar, Rick Wakeman on keyboards, Chris Squire on bass guitar, and Bill Bruford on drums. So... Drew, what was the uh, what was the critical reception like of this record when it came out in 1972? I think it was pretty mixed. Yeah, from what I from what I, I had read about it, I do know from a commercial sense this was actually one of their most popular, if not the most popular to yeah. date. Um, it reached number three on the Billboard US charts, number four in the UK, and number one in the Netherlands. Um, wow! It it did a, a it was. <laughs> It's crazy to think that it was that popular because when we typically think about progressive rock, we think about, yes, stuff that maybe got radio play, but usually not stuff that was that popular. I mean, we've had exceptions to that rule, like Sgt. Pepper's and The Dark Side of the Moon. Um, But a lot of progressive rock uh, um, just isn't, I I just don't think of it as very mainstream. Uh, Right. But this, and and again, some of our other albums have kind of defied that expectation. and right. uh, I thought that was very interesting. It was number five, uh, or is number five, on Rolling Stone's top 50 greatest prog rock albums of all time. Wow. Uh, it is number 32 on Sound and Vision's top 50 albums of all time. Um, and it's also included in the book 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die, which I, I, think, I think it was our last episode that uh, that record was also on there. Uh, uh, moving, pictures. moving pictures was on that on that list, yeah. right? Yeah, I think so. Um, but as far as like thoughts on it, um, it was uh, it was mixed. Um, in McDonald in 1972, he thought um, they were not just close to the edge; they had gone right over it. End quote. <laughs> uh-huh. um, 
he called it though at the same time. So it was kind of an admiration uh, that they they played their heart out. He, he said that too. He played their goddamn guts out, is what he says. Wow. Uh, but he mixed it with uh, a lot of a lot of criticism too. He said, <laughs> "This is pretty." A bold statement to make. Yeah. An attempt to overwhelm us, which resulted in only unmemorable meaninglessness uh, on every level, but the ordinary aesthetic one. It's one of the most remarkable records pop has 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 yet produced. So that's a mixed bag. It's calling it unmemorable and and meaningless on the one hand, and at the same time saying it's one of the most remarkable records pop has ever produced. That's. Um, I mean, I don't even think he did his job correctly. Like, I know. <laughs> I know. So, what's your thesis? What is, is it good or isn't? Here? Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, that does, that gives us no answers with that I know. review. Uh, another another uh, review from the San Bernardino Sun uh, said, "Not since Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band has there been one side of an album that expressed such a complete and exci- uh, such a complete and exciting a musical thought as Side One." Wow. So, um, I-, I think. For the most part, people enjoyed this record uh, a good bit, um, and it's it's hard not to be interested in it at the very least. This has a very interesting blend of melodies and harmonies throughout. Uh, a lot agree. of that credit goes to John Anderson. Yes, John Anderson, I think, orchestrated uh, a lot of this record. Um, so he he looks on it fondly, from what I've read in interviews and heard when he's being interviewed. Is is he really looks on this album with a lot of fondness? Um, so yeah. yeah, what did you think, Destin? I mean, this is something that you know you and I have grown up listening to in high school. We've heard yeah. it for a long time, right? But uh, what are, what are what are some of your thoughts on on the record? Well, actually, I mean, due to honestly, the first thing that comes to my mind is I'm actually really uh, really surprised at uh, at the reviews of this because you know this album only contains three songs. You know, it's it's a right. three song record. The front. The, you know the the whole side one is is an 18 minute just monster and also the title track of the record but there's two songs that are four part epics essentially and um songs like that i, I mean nowadays i, I you never hear an 18 you're not going to hear a 10 minute song played on the radio unless it's like some like classic rock station you know what i mean um right there you know it's just it just doesn't happen so it's really cool to see an album that literally only had three songs, one of them being an 18 minute long song, another one being a 10 minute long song, and then the other one being a nine minute long song and receiving yeah. such incredible, you know, incredible critical reception as well as the listener reception from it. Uh, my personal opinion on it is honestly, I, when I first heard it um, and even even for the next couple of years listening to it, it wasn't my favorite uh, Yes album. And uh, I actually almost preferred some of their shorter works on like the Yes album and Fragile because I just, I really liked but all the compositions. But then it really started growing on me with this record uh, because honestly, because of the bass, that was like one of the biggest things I think that drew, that drew me closer to this album is just- the, Closer to the edge? Yes, yes, it, it drew me closer to the edge was the bass like the bass is so like i mean it's we'll fantastic. talk about it. it's it's spectacular and uh, and to know that these guys when they at, were at the time of recording that were like 23 25 i think john anderson was like roughly 28 or something like that it's impressive like really really impressive and oh, yeah. uh it's just 
Yes is just a very unique band to begin with. I've never found another band that sounded anything like them, that their sound, the way that their albums sound, they're just so unique. And that's yeah. why I personally love them. And especially their first their first couple of albums before it hit kind of the 80s and everything. And especially since Bill Bruford left. Um, but why, I mean, why did Bill Bruford leave after this record group? I think we should kind of start there because he was a huge part of the band and, and their sound because of his kind of jazzy influence combined with all of this other, yeah. you know, all the other stuff. But why, why did he leave after this record? Yeah. Uh, I'll go into some of the stuff that I've, that I've heard about this and, and, and read about as well. Yeah. Uh, I think I mentioned in the past also just want to give a shout out to uh, this, this person. Uh, if you guys have ever heard of in the studio with Redbeard, or if you have not, definitely worth a, uh, a listen. This guy, um, I think he used to be a radio DJ and then he started doing his own podcast and everything. And he is able to, I, I don't, I don't know how he has so much pull. That's amazing. He interviews a lot of famous musicians about specific records and he did one on close to the edge and he was able to interview, I think, I think all of them except Chris Squire. Yeah. Um, at that point, I'm not sure if he had passed away yet when he released the episode. I can't remember. Um, but it, it, it's pretty incredible that he's able to get so up close and personal with all these people and talk about uh, the work. Um, yeah. Because he does it with a bunch of people. He does it with Falk Collins, Peter Gabriel, Paul McCartney he's had on there. Wow. Um, anyways, enough to go on and on about him, but he's worth a listen to. Um, but he interviews them about Close to the Edge, and he uh, – <laughs> Listening to the contrasting views between Anderson and Bruford is is pretty crazy to me. Anderson and on the one hand, it's very entertaining loved, too. It, yeah. yeah, Anderson on the one hand talks nothing but praise about this record. He says the time was amazing. This is a perennial record. This is something that will stand the test of time. You know, we were in London, which was just a very familiar and comfortable place for us. We were at Advision Studios with people who let us do what we wanted to and create really great art and i loved it it was a fantastic time it was a beautiful period of time that will never happen again and he speaks of it with such fondness yeah cut to bruford who has <laughs> it seems with the it was the way he says that the his 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 choice of words and everything has nothing but contempt for this period of his life and this record specifically yeah uh now maybe i'm overstating that but the way he says it is <laughs> he would talk about how the rest of the musicians, maybe not all of them, but particularly um, Anderson and Squire got on his nerves. Anderson, because he um, didn't, he called him incompetent as a, an incompetent musician, um, that Anderson didn't really come in with any structure. He would have these ideas that weren't really formed very well. And, you know, it, it felt like a chore to him, to Bruford to say, okay, no, that doesn't work theory wise. Let me show you why. Or he would say, Steve, can you show him why this doesn't work? You know, and he would say the idea would get formed, would help to be, you know, something listenable by the four competent musicians around Anderson. Um, Interesting. And he talks about how it was just very disorganized. Uh, you know, he, he he used a metaphor of saying, it's like having five different authors try to write a book. It was like, okay, this guy's got a good middle, but this guy has an ending that needs a little work. And this guy has a great beginning, but the way he transitions into the middle is weird and it doesn't line up with this guy. It's just, it's just chaos. Yeah. You know, what, what kind of a story are we going for? What kind of musical idea in this case are we going for? Um, he said there was just very little structure. Um, 
and he just thought it was just too much. He was like, look, I've had my fill of, of these guys who can't get on the same page. Uh, I think his, his, he had a little bit of resent for Squire because he mentioned very, you know, in passing in the interview, he was like, you know, Squire was always late. Yeah. I think Rupert has a measure of excellence that was not matched by some of the members of yes back in the day. Yeah. Um, He is a very, he's a very, he's a very intelligent guy. Like the way, the way Bruford speaks. I mean, I think he's, he, he's a very intelligent dude. And, uh, and I think that he probably, I don't know. I mean, they probably all had egos, but you know, for, for Bruford, I think he was just, he was the professional of the group and everybody else is, I mean, you know, Squire showing up late, they got this idea and it's like, there's, there's really no structure involved. It's just, it's kind of like a garage band and, and Bruford's like, what are we doing? Like, is there, right. you know what I mean? So I think he's like, I'm wanting more structure. The rest of the band is just kind of like, let's just flow with the, right. you know, let's just go with the wind kind of thing and see what happens kind of deal. Right. And maybe he also mentioned in the interview, maybe he felt like he was kind of pulled into their world rather than let's make a world together in the sense that I think the, the most of the credit for at least the epic on this song, which gets a lot of attention, yeah, uh, was written by Anderson and Howe. It was written by John Anderson and Steve Howe the close to the edge epic, the side one. Right. And, uh, <laughs> Bruford said Anderson, and this is Bruford's I know words, it. you know, this is his perspective comes in and he says, so, so Anderson would come into the room and he would play something. And, you know, some of us wouldn't like it. We'd be kind of groaning, be like, Oh God, do we have to play it like that. And his, you know, Bruford says Anderson had this idea, this mentality of, okay, you can either fix it or you can quit. And he says, he says, which is uh, an approach that, or, or something like that, an approach that Hitler would take, something slightly to the right of Hitler. Which so so under you can't un- get more right yeah. than than Hitler. Hitler is the rightest politically and men- mentally. If 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 he's saying what I think he's saying, he's calling John Anderson get a more Nazi. Right. He's gonna, <laughs> I don't know if he's calling him so much that, but it's just it's it's you know, and he says that with such so cavalier right you know there's no laughter after bruford says that right I, he i his he thinks that you know he's like you know it's very hitler-esque it's that's very so, dude that's hilarious controlling it's very controlling it's very you will join my party you know my ideas my art or you're gonna leave and bruford was just kind of like well it's like this is not only ridiculous and unfair it's also laughable because you don't know what the hell you're doing so this is so funny they're all in the same room together and he's saying this stuff no, they're not. No, no, okay. no, 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 okay. no, no. So, so he interviews these members, Redbeard. He interviews them individually. Gotcha. Okay. Individually, okay. separately. You know, so it wasn't no, like I they came to this. Get him in a yeah, room. So it's not like they came to the studio together. and talked to him. It was no. Like, okay. No, 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 no. That would have been hilarious. No. He wouldn't sit in front of John Anderson. John Anderson wouldn't keep quiet. Um, <clears throat> I mean, how would you feel if someone called you right. Hitler? Exactly. Um, <laughs> I would be like, what in the world? Yeah, exactly. When, and, and you know, when we're just trying to make music here, you right, know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to do yeah. is make we're talking, a music. We're talking record. about a record that's already had success, and now you're still bashing me yeah. about it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That's hilarious. Um, you know, for me, I uh, I can understand where Bruford's coming to, from, but I will say it it does sadden my heart a little bit because I think this is a fantastic piece. Oh, of most music. definitely. I think it is a wonderful record. You know, this is. You know, for a while, and I don't know if I still would. There's so much music I've listened to. 
since then, but back in high school and even college, I would automatically say, this is not just my, my favorite yes album. This is my second favorite album ever. Yeah. After dark side, you know, this was, this is a fantastic, phenomenal record that when I heard it by my mind was blown. And, uh, it's just sad to think that, um, Bruford from what I heard just doesn't, doesn't really admire this record at all. And maybe it's just because of the memories. Yeah. I wonder how he feels about the music itself because mainly he talked about Remembers. the time creating it and all of that. But I wonder what he thinks about, okay, strip all of that away. Just listen to the music. What is your critical thought to this? You know? Yeah. Uh, cause all of them are fantastic musicians, right? Uh, maybe the process of writing was, was difficult and everything, but you know, just like a lot of other progressive rock we've talked about, they exhibit a lot of virtuosity on each instrument. And not only that, it blends well with the music. Right. It's not just, you know, showing who's got, you know, the biggest and best, uh, technical abilities. It, it blends well with the music. It fits. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the reasons I have such admiration for this. Um, knowing, knowing wait that they've all had this like massive tension in the studio, maybe, maybe not right. all of them, obviously, but, but you know, a third or a fourth right. of the band all had this massive tension and they're trying to do so. They're trying to make this, trying to record it, whatever. And they still, create something that's like it, it blends very well meshes very well and, and still sounds very unique and uh right yeah, i mean it's 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 interesting uh listening to it's it's interesting listening to the album knowing the story behind you know just the frustration all the blood sweat tears and nazism going on you know what i mean so right yeah <laughs> right i um i know that it had to have been an exciting period of time for them because this was right after Fragile, which was our third record or third episode, yeah. sorry, yep. our third episode on, on this show. And that really launched them into a different atmosphere of popularity uh, because of Roundabout, uh, which again, I you know we talked about that probably, sorry, probably on that episode, but it's crazy that an eight minute track got so much yeah. attention. Uh, it got a lot of radio play, but that was big for them. And American audiences uh, were really starting to respond to it as well as, you know, obviously they're native British. But uh, then it was like, well, where do we go from here? We've had so much success with this one record and this one track specifically. What's the next thing that we do? Is it going to be as good? And uh, I think it's fantastic that this was a, an amazing, phenomenal um, like follow-up to that. Yeah. You know, and I think all of them, uh, even Bruford, I think, was probably feeling that. You know, you've got so much attention. How are you going to follow this up? And uh, it's a great one to follow up. And also for Bruford. It's a great one to go out on, yeah, man. Right. I mean, even if you didn't like it, it's your drumming's fantastic yeah, on seriously. it. Yeah, so. <laughs> seriously. And he went on to join King Crimson, which is another huge right. band. And we, you know, we did uh, in the court of the Crimson King, which Bruford wasn't a part of, but that's our fifth episode that we uh, that we did. But I actually have a quote from from Anderson talking about kind of after Fragile and going into the like the long pieces of music. You know, he says Anderson quotes the band had just done a huge tour for Fragile. And we were quite pleased at how the audiences were loving the longer pieces that we played live. Roundabout was eight minutes long, Starship Trooper was nine, and Heart of the Sunrise was over 11 minutes. These are well-constructed pieces of music that worked, that really worked on stage. We were feeling very powerful, like we could do anything. End quote. Yeah. Yeah. I think that... That's got to be an exciting period of time. I mean, you know, for any band, when you're you, when you're getting your stride and you're you, you know becoming more popular or whatever, and uh, it's great for them because they they didn't have to sacrifice yeah. anything. You know, uh, kind of like Rush, in a sense, they um, 
they made. I mean, listen to what you're listening to right now. This isn't something that you think, yeah, this will get yeah, a lot it's of so radio eclectic, play. dude. No, it's just it's it's very diverse. It's very out there. Um, but you know, it's cool because they were like, I think people are going to respond to this. They've already responded to longer songs. Yeah. Um, and this so, and this is yeah, the the pretty, uh, this is the title track close to the ears that we're listening to the the uh, 18 minute title track. Um, but like, one of the things I always found. One of the things I find funny about this album is just the, the, the amount of success it has and how weird the first two, three minutes of this song is. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, I find that to be like, oh, that's yeah. the most important part of any record is the first two minutes, you know? Because that's that's the part where you're like, okay, we got to grasp them as fast as we can so we can keep them listening. And then they, like, this is just so weird. It's just so yeah. weird. But it's, you know, I can appreciate it and it's cool, but it's, I mean, it's not my favorite part of the record, but <laughs> it's, it's weird. It's just out there, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. But I mean, another, another Anderson quote, you know, he said, it's, he said, it's, it's very, quote, it's very representative of what I think is the yes style. We experimented a lot, but we also had the talent to back it up. It wasn't just solo after solo. We told stories and created moods. It was all very daring and wonderful. Huh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like I said, and, and you know, you hear that tone in his voice when he's talking in, in his interview. He really admires this this period of their career. Yeah. He really likes it. Yeah. Um But uh Dustin, do we want to go into the, the meaning of, of the song, of the epic? Dude, yeah. Go ahead and try and explain that. Yeah. 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 Uh <laughs> it's just it's yeah. I mean there, there's a... Uh, I don't know if it's a I lost cause or what, but you know. I I don't like. I try. I you know. I try looking at lyrics and seeing what people are, are trying to, to to say with their lyrics and everything. Th- this this has eluded me. I, I I don't I don't get what Anderson's trying to say. I think he wrote all of the lyrics to I'm this. I'm sure he did. Uh, and I don't get it. I look through all of them and. I don't see any attachments to anything. They're very abstract, very vague yeah. lyrics. And uh, from what I've heard and what he has said and what other people have reported on, purportedly, this is supposed to be Anderson's message of self-realization. He had just read a book called Siddhartha by Hermann Hess, which is a German novel. Yeah. Talking, uh, which pertains in some way, I think, to the Buddha and Siddhartha Gautama. Um and I, I think it kind of plays on this notion of, of well, self-realization is the main term, but I'm guessing that kind of extends in a sense to uh, nirvana in the Buddhist religion. Okay. So um, I'm guessing that that has something to do with it. But his whole deal with this, I think, was supposed to was supposed to say close to the edge is the edge of realization of self-realization. Uh, and I've read he Anderson even admits that often his lyrics reveal their meaning to him later. So he said that Nat applied to this record. So uh, whatever that means, he didn't. I, he yeah, I guess he that means in a sense he didn't really know what he was writing until later. <laughs> he listened to his right, own yeah. music later and said, "Oh, that's what I meant." Right. Yeah. Which is very spiritual in a sense. That makes it seem like maybe he thought that you know some other force or entity was speaking through him. And that he himself didn't get it until later. So he Anderson has always been, I'm just gonna say it, he's a bit he's of a, a hippie. He's a massive hippie, dude. He's very spiritual. He's very out there. Um, 
which is cool, you know. Oh, um, dude, this bass line. Oh, I know. It's Gosh. Fantastic. But, uh, yeah, I just wanted to talk. I guess that's very short on me trying to explain or not explain what this is supposed to be. I mean, be. you can, you can uh, keep talking about it, but I have nothing to add to this conversation. Uh, I mean, I can't. I, there's nothing I could add to this that adds any value to whatever Anderson's trying to talk about. So, I would I would have to seriously sit down with him and go line by yeah, line. It's, I would have to be, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this yeah. mean? And, because they're just that abstract. Right. Uh, which is cool. And that's, again, kind of a thing of Prague is that they, they try to, um, with, with the lyrics in a lot of this genre, it's they are abstract or they are philosophical. They are literary. You know, he was inspired by literature for this. And he, you know, this is a philosophy of self-realization and inner self and knowing who you are. Yeah. And all of that. Um, stuff that's, you know, pretty metaphysical stuff. So, you know, I, I again, that just kind of, is another example of, of or, or sorry element of prog rock being exhibited in this progressive rock yeah. record so i think specifically um, for john anderson he probably i think he uh the delivery of the way he uh the delivery of the lyrics the way he sings is a little bit more interesting than the lyrics itself in my opinion yeah yeah I you know, what you're the way he the way he sings and he i mean he's it, the voice the voice is one thing you know he has that very high tenor voice um which we we talk we talk a little bit about his voice on the fragile episode uh how it's it's not uh falsetto like to, his voice is just that high yeah um but then also the very tight harmonies that that go involved with that and, and how the harmonies are mixed in the music is just very unique and but also the way that he sings and how he layers the vocals on top of the music it's it's a sometimes it's a little it's a little different. I, I can't really describe it. Uh, the timing with how he sings certain lines um, and how he uses the harmony. You know, sometimes there is no harmony on the vocal. Kind of like I always relate it to Boston. You know, with just the massive walls of harmony. Yeah. Or uh, or like Devin Townsend or something like that. The massive walls of harmony, and uh, they're just not like that. And I love. I I just like that more. It's a little bit more subtle. Yeah. Um, but. He definitely, you know, if the lyrics don't do anything for you listening to the album, the way that John Anderson sings and the delivery of the lyrics, is it's really cool. The, the, it's still, ad, it adds to the music, whether you don't get the lyrics or not. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, I will say singing along, dude, I've listened to the record, dude, I don't even remember the last, like when I first heard the album, but if somebody's picking this up and listening to it or they listen to it over and over, like this is one of those albums like, I could try to sing along with it, but I have no idea what he's saying. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh yeah, like I know this part. Like I get up, I get down. Yeah, that's all I got. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's nothing else I can really sing with it. But uh, yeah. I'd be interested to see if anyone's listening and they want to give feedback or something. Uh, what, how they interpret the lyrics, or or if they want to tackle that or something. Yeah, uh, I'm sure there's a bunch of forums on that stuff too. I'm I'm sure, but yeah, I'd because love to it's see. so open ended. I bet. Yeah. I'd yeah. love to see what some of the, the listeners have to say. Yeah. This is one of those, that part of the song, it's actually, I used to, I used to get really bored during this, this part of the song, oh, but I think it's brilliant. I think it's grown on me a lot. Well, very, and you uh, can hear, it's almost the sound of, of, uh, of like drops almost in a cave. It sounds in a like. cave. Do you Absolutely. hear that? Yeah. Oh yeah, dude. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's well, very they always subtle. had, and the the yes albums always have those not always but they 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 
use those like rock structures on the records and stuff. Yeah, you know what I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it, they it do. Always reminded me of that. Yeah, but the the drops combined with the very very soft keys playing in the background. Yep. Yep. Uh, is, is phenomenal. That and this the the harmonies that I think are Squire and How in the background yep. are great. Yeah. Oh, it's really um, cool. You said Anderson you said this is you said this was your uh like your second favorite album of all time. Yeah, like I said, like, it I, was I don't one know if of that those still things... maintains today because I've heard a lot of music since then. Yeah, but yeah, it but, was I mean, but, for sure. But either way, either way, you speak really, really highly of the record. Like, what what first captured you into into this record? Like, what's your favorite? What's your favorite parts of this? Song? I don't even, I don't even think I know Ooh. that. Uh, I think. Hold on, I'm trying to think. So, and you and I is a beautiful song, and the climax of that is just oh, phenomenal, so good. But yeah. also the climax of this part where it really builds to just. I, I, there are a lot of things I love about this record. I love the huge Anderson voice, just really belting it. And it stays on just him for a little bit. And then, then the, uh, the, the huge church organ comes in and it's massive wall of sound. Oh yeah. With Anderson still trying to rise above that and rise with that at the same time. Yeah. Oh, it's phenomenal. And right before that, you get this part that we're listening to now. Just very beautiful yeah. harmonies in the background that are, you know, that are, and they're singing something different and a different, right. you know, kind of melody than Anderson. And that weaves together so well. Yeah. And I think that climax, I get up, I get down, you yeah. know, and he holds that and holds that. And then this massive church organ. It's oh, in. yeah. Here Let's we go. Yeah. Built so well. Yeah, dude, I got That's, I got goosebumps listening to that. It's majestic. That's one of the best descriptors I can put. It is just so it's, it's, it's majestic. Huge. Yeah. I wonder. I didn't catch where they recorded this organ at, but I bet it was probably some church in London. I bet. Yeah, they did. I think they did. That's actually, so funny. I don't want to. I I wanna... Gosh, I'm just now thinking like, oh yeah, we're singing about a song and subtly, you know, maybe bashing organized religion, but we're gonna go record this organ in a church because we oh, need it. Oh yeah, yeah. That's something that I had mentioned in the, the world right before the episode. But apparently, John Anderson was not a fan of organized religion, right? Uh, and yeah. he said uh, he takes some shots at the institution in the song both with the lyrics, like with how many millions do we deceive each day? But and no one really music, can tell that. And then in the music, yeah. a church organ comes in, which is replaced by a Moog synthesizer, which is about to happen right now, actually, in the music. Um, but, you know, Anderson says, this leads to another organ solo rejoicing in the fact that you can turn your back on churches and find it within yourself to be your own church. <laughs> it's, well, no, it's just interesting. It's so I, I didn't have that interpretation when I listening to it but i can see when you explain it okay i can see that your your bash at the church kind of replacing it with new new music and stuff like that but i i don't know but it's beautiful i mean all of the music blends so well beautifully yeah dude Ray, um, wakeman crushes this i mean he just absolutely kills it right here yeah uh so i i Destin, you asked me why i i like this so much oh yeah I sorry we got this, we got interrupted by the that epic part there I, <laughs> I think that this album has, if not perfect, 
really, really good <laughs> um, balance of melody and complexity. Yeah. They exhibit, and I mentioned that a little bit earlier, but they exhibit the virtuosity, but it's not in your face because it just works so well with the music. It just blends so well with what the music is, and it just all sounds phenomenal. Um, yeah. I think the drumming on this record, not just be, it's phenomenal, not just because Bruford is a, a bizarrely amazing drummer. He's my favorite drummer. Yeah. Not just because of that, but the sound of it is so great too. Uh, it seems to, to me that in a lot of modern records, not that this is wrong, but a lot of modern records have the drums sounding very big and in your face. And that's due to the advent of technology, uh, of, the, of new technology. And Here they mixed go. it differently in the past. Um, Favorite organ solo of all time. Uh, <laughs> um, but Close to the Edge doesn't overdo that, that drum sound. I feel like I can see Bruford playing his very simple kit with this, but it's crazy stuff still because he's a phenomenal drummer. He's you know, technical. A great drummer. He's a very technical yeah. drummer. He's yeah. a great drummer and a great musician of any kind can do amazing things with very limited, you know, technology yeah. and, and capabilities of, of what their instruments can do, but they can make their instruments do crazy things. I think I read um, something online with, uh, with uh, how they recorded the drums um, Eddie Offord, who was, I think, who was like their long-standing producer for a, a good a hot minute. I think he did like the first four records, three, four records or whatever. But I think what he was trying to do is, uh, I think I read somewhere where, you know, they just got off this fragile tour and Eddie really wanted to capture the live sound that they did. So they actually put the drums on top of a wood platform and recorded it there to make it sound live. Huh. I think I read that somewhere. I don't, I, I mean, you could probably look into that, but... To, to record the, I mean, obviously to elevate the drums on a wooden platform, obviously is going to create a bunch of like vibration and overtone from underneath because obviously there's, there's, you're hitting drums. So it's going to, you know, it's going to ring and vibrate into the ground and um, which would affect the, the sound of the drums for sure. Most of the time in recording, we try to get rid of that. You know, we try to dead the room out so we can capture a clean noise, a clean right, sound. Right, right. Um, you know, and sometimes we want to capture the room noise, but we want to be able to have power to be able to mix it in whenever we want to. But I think they just straight recorded it on top of that, um, on top of a wooden platform that they built. So uh, I have to go and look at that a little bit more. But just, uh, that was a little anecdote to your uh, to you talking about yeah. how, how the drums sound on the record. Right. No, but I can hear that. You know what I'm saying? Like I can hear there's some echo in those drums and it kind of it totally blends well and works perfectly hand in hand with these organs that have a lot of breath in them that are allowed to breathe, that are very wide, very open, very atmospheric. Yeah. Those drums work with that. It's perfect that the drums, if, if like you say, if it's true, that they, they're very open, right? You get that echo, you get a live sound because that's what it feels like yeah. with the rest of the music and it's phenomenal. I love the sound of the drums in this record. That's something uh, that I've never thought about. Drumming. Something I've never thought about before is the is um, it, the way that why why it sounds so different. It's like because John Anderson has this very he has this tenor voice, but it's also even though he has harmonies, it's not a wall of harmony. You know, it's still very light and delicate. And the guitars are by far not walls. Like there's never one thing that's just kind of like up in your face with it. It the whole album yeah. breathes really well. What if I said that? Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? The whole album just breathes really well. The drums are open, have 
you know, open sounds to it. The organs and the moogs and, and all of the synthesizers and stuff uh, blend very well together. And they're, they're not just, they're not harsh. And the guitars are not harsh as well. They're, they're honestly kind of um, what I call just kind of just licks. You know, there's just a lot of, I yeah. mean, Steve Howe's playing is very unique. It's just kind of, a, it's a lot of licks and stuff like that that are going on. It's never just him ramming a couple of power chords. Um, in fact, I don't yeah. think he's ever done that on a Yes record. Um, you know, it's it's never a bunch of chords. So it's it breathes really well. And uh, it's right. actually, in my opinion, kind of refreshing from modern day music. When right. everything's up in your face, everything's super compressed. And, uh, and, and it just, I'm not saying that it sounds better, but it's just refreshing in a certain sense. Yeah, no, I totally get that. Um, to kind of springboard off of that and talk about the sound, just a fun fact, Stephen Wilson, who we talked about, I think it was our 12th episode, yeah. which was uh, on Porcupine Tree I mean, I was, when I think we it was reviewed 13th. their album In Absentia. Uh, yeah, he did, Stephen Wilson did a 5.1 surround sound mix of of this record. I really want to listen fun, to that. Which is funny, because I think we also mentioned at some point that he has done that kind of stuff for like King Crimson. Like he's done a bunch of mixes for a lot of progressive rock artists. Oh, yeah. Rock artists. Yeah, he has. I think it's funny. He like It's funny. I just see him like peeking like his head like through a doorframe being like, hey, guys, I'm still here. I, I, I do a lot of stuff with progress. Holy crap. That's how I see Steven Wilson. It's just kind of like, oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, I'm just going to remix this real quick. Remix that. Really? Uh, yeah. Cool. All right. I think awesome. he, I think he did a Thanks, uh, Thick as a Brick, too. I think he did a, a remix of Thick as a Brick by Jethro Did Tull. he really? Yeah, I thought. I also think he did another remix of uh, Aqualung, another Jethro Tull record. Um, oh, man, it just, he just keeps coming through that doorway. Dude, uh, yeah, I'll get right on that, guys. Yeah, he's, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mix that. He plugs himself in just all of the, the old prog stuff, uh, which I think is pretty cool. Uh, yeah, he tries to very, very neat. Yeah, it's really cool. I'd love to listen to a 5.1 surround. Of, I'm of sure that you would. I'm sure that I would. Oh. And I'm sure that I will someday. Drew, thank you. Oh, man. Gosh. Okay. So I want to I want to talk about the uh, the bass on this because we, we've talked about we've talked about we've had some uh, holy crap. That's something else. We we've had some pretty monster bass players on the show. And I wanted to ask you because you're a bass player. And and I wanted to ask you personally what you believe, and I get this is more so your approach. I want to I, I want to hear your personal uh, approach on this, but like the role of bass in the in progressive rock, and and maybe talk about specifically with yes, but in your own opinion, what is the what is the role like? What what is the role of the bass? Not the maybe not the bass player, but just the bass in progressive rock, and and specifically yes. Um, well, the bass has always had a very special relationship with the drums. Um, yes. they have to lock in with the drums no matter what, uh, I, I think, um, <clears throat> and with progressive rock, well, with rock to begin with, from my experience listening to old rock and roll and even beginning rock, it was more of a rhythm I- instrument, uh, and almost that right. purely sticking to a certain structure, a certain key, not very riff oriented at all you know, absolutely necessary, but almost more of a supporting role or a supportive role in the music right. rather than something that's front and center. And kind of thumpy. yeah, very thumpy, very lo- lots of low end, very bass, given that, you know, boom, 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 uh, that right. type of deal when you're listening to a lot of, um, older rock and rock and roll. And 
Prague changed that and expanded the role of the bass to be something that is not only rhythmic because it has always maintained that. Again, I think bass always has to lock in with the drums. Yes, the drums is yeah. the rhythm instrument. So it, but they yes. they have to have, uh, you know, a a good relationship and really lock in with one another and synchronize together. So it was not only stayed, you know, a rhythm instrument, but it expanded into something more melodic, something that could be more front and center, something that was more riff oriented. Uh, before that, I, I think prog rock really, if it didn't start it, it at least popularized it. Um, you know, the notion yeah. that bass can be a lot, a lot more than something that just supports the guitar. It can also have a lot of really cool stuff uh, going on. And um, I think it helps also with the way they shape the tone of the bass, particularly with Getty Lee and Chris Squire. They made it a lot less thumpy like you were talking about like you know yeah dum, 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 dum. they made it crunchier you you used that term earlier to describe the yes bass, and that's true it's a lot crunchier um because they they increased higher frequencies on that um and they gave a little bit more distortion to the bass just a tiny bit to give it um just a yeah, crunchy is the best way I, I'm trying to think yeah. of other higher, uh, higher, higher attack frequency. Yeah, higher attack, higher frequencies so they can be better heard. Right. You exactly. Know? Yeah. And more, more overtones. Yeah, exactly. Um, and when you have that combined with riffs and utilizing more of the neck, you know, Chris Squire, especially in this record, you can hear goes higher up on the neck a lot of times. He loves to do yes. a lot of high strumming on 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 you know the the higher frequencies on the neck. Yeah. High, um, and uh, He's also one that I kind of give a pass to. I joke a lot of the times about how I'm like, oh, you're not a real bass player if you don't play with your fingers, right? If you use a pick, you're not real. And the only reason I say that, I just joke about that. But the main reason I say that is because I think a lot of people who do that, not all of them, but a lot of bass players who do that were really guitar players first. And they just figured, oh, this is easy. It's got four strings instead of six. So I'll still use my pick and everything. And right. while I kind of deride jokingly about that, um, there is something to be said that you can't get a certain tone or a certain sound out of a bass with a finger that you can with the pick. If right. you played this track with your fingers, you are not going to sound like Chris Squire on this record. It doesn't no, matter yeah, if you have right. the exact same bass. It doesn't matter. It, you have to have a pick. It, that provides a lot, of, a lot of that crunch, a lot of that snap to that bass. You, yeah. you have to have that pick. So... To, to pick playing bass players, there's your credit. I'm giving you that credit. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. No, but it's, um, it. but, 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 uh, but I think, yeah, I think that Chris Squire was definitely one of the front men of expanding the role of the bass on seeing what it could do and just having to be more vibrant and a little bit more colorful in, in yeah. the entire space of, of rock. So. Yeah, I mean, and we and speaking to Getty Lee from Rush, I think did did a lot of that too. And and uh, I mean, who else have we uh, we've talked about? Uh, we talked about Genesis as well. We, I mean, with selling England by the pound, there's just a lot of um, right. I think I think um, um, Emerson Lake and Palmer, Greg Lake was really a part oh, of that yeah. group as well. Yeah. And I mean, and it, 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 now even looking at that as well, I mean, it, that tone is still around. People still love doing the you know the whole fender jazz and you know putting it through the the crunchy bass tone and and creating a uh a, a lead instrument 
you know what I mean? Kind of like the guitar out of the bass. And yeah. so I, I love, I love how, you know, because up until like the 1950s, you know, the, the upright double bass was still the instrument of choice. Right. Right. You yeah, know? And so when we, when we hit the sixties, you know, you had the, the, what is it? The, uh, the Fender precision. It's like mm-hmm. that, that, yeah, the first, I think that was like the, one of the first, that was like the first mass, like distributed bass on the market or something like that, you know, in the sixties. And then it, and it like cemented its reputation as just a, as a great workhorse bass guitar. You know, it's, I mean, it's, it's heard with like, uh, Elvis Presley and Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys and Carol Kay, Wrecking Crew, uh, John Entwistle of the Who, uh, right, Sting, right. Sting of the Police and, and a lot of others. And so when we're hitting the seventies, you know, rock music's no longer in its infancy. Bass started to evolve in a bit and in a way that was played, you know, we got the Rickenbacker bass, you know, we had the, uh, you know, the Fender jazz bass, which is get what Getty is. So, um, uh, I guess, is he known for that bass? Like known for playing that bass? I don't even know. Uh, I mean, yeah, know. like, like recent times, whenever you, you, you see him, you know, anything past the nineties, really in the early two thousands, he has always kept that Fender, the Fender jazz, but yeah. in, I think a lot of his iconic sound actually came from, you mentioned it earlier, Rickenbacker. The Rickenbacker, so, yeah. And the, and the pick. Played, yeah. Or no, uh, wait, we're, you're no. talking about, you're talking about Getty. I'm talking about Getty. Oh, yeah, oh, I thought yeah, you mentioned yeah. Getty. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, no, in the early days, Getty would use a lot of, of Rickenbacker. I mean, just like just like a lot of other bands, the, you know, they switched out for different songs if they wanted a different sound, obviously, because different, you know, bases produce different sounds. So, but I think a lot of the pictures you see of him when they were big and in their youth with the 2112 and hemispheres and all that stuff was with a, with a Rickenbacker bass. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. I just, I love, I love how the, the bass got expanded through that because. Oh, me too. It sounds, <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. But it just, this record just sounds so good. The bet, the bass is so cool. The way he it plays is. it and the, the tone of it, the melodies that come through the bass throughout the entire, like every single section of the title track, at least close to the edge. It's one of my favorite performances from a bass, from a bass guitarist perspective and like any, and all music. It's just, there's so many amazing riffs and it always catches my eye or catches my ear. Um, every time I, every time I hear it, it always comes up. It's awesome. Yeah. So I think Chris Squire was definitely on, on the edge <laughs> of something new with, that's right. with the bass. And this, this, this is a perfect, this record is a perfect example of that. Yeah. I love it. Okay, so Drew, you there? Yes. So there's been this. Uh, <laughs> there's been a question, um, maybe not a question, but I think more of an assumption that uh, on the internet that makes claims to prog rock lovers as quote elitists. Have you seen this? Um. Okay. Yes. So. I wanted I wanted to tackle this question. I wanted to ask your thoughts about it, um, and uh, and and talk about it a little bit because I wanted to know maybe maybe there's some differences or misunderstandings, or maybe there maybe it's true. But I wanted to know your opinion on it. Are are you know in this kind of the everybody? Are Drew and I elitists? Are prog rock lovers all elitists? So I think uh, this would be for maybe the maybe the person who you know thinks people who really like prog rock or just you know in over their you know what i mean maybe they just think they're kind of pretentious uh maybe they are um 
or is you know for for the prog rock lover maybe is this something that's like okay why do you make make it sound like your music is better than somebody else's music like you know what i mean like better you know you know that what i'm talking about right right yeah so you know to kick this thing off on one form i found this person this is funny this person said yes we are an elite but no we are not elitist so what are your thoughts on this um i think most of them are i'm not saying all of them are i think most of them are um I think it's because there is a certain challenge to this music. It's more difficult. Granted, this is not the most difficult music to play, a lot of this stuff. But yeah. it is still very challenging, and it's more challenging than most of the stuff that you hear on the radio that a lot of the mainstream listens to. And um, I would say back in like high school, I was very pretentious. I'll, I'll, I'll go ahead and, and just be real. Just call um, yourself out there. As I, I'm calling myself out. Uh, as I've grown, though, I've appreciated a lot of different types of genres. Stuff that has something that's a little bit simpler as far as, you know, technical execution, but still delivers an incredible emotional impact. Well, granted, Rock Rock can sometimes do that, too. Pink Floyd is not super hard to play, as long as you have the right tones and the right knobs and the right technology to produce kind of a very colorful atmosphere that David Gilmour does with his guitar. But the actual strumming of the notes it, it, and, you know, and drumming and all of that, it's not that difficult. It doesn't sound like. So, but right. that is still some of my favorite music ever. Um, but... All that to say is I think in general, though, progressive rock lends itself to an audience that enjoys um, experimentation with, with different sounds and a, a little bit of a challenge from a technical aspect. But unfortunately, a lot of people in the prog rock community tend to say or think it's more complicated, it's more artistic, and that idea of more and more makes it, gives an air of superiority. And right. it, it shouldn't, it, it, you know, this is just what you and I have really gravitated towards. We do appreciate uh -huh. those aspects that it is a bit different because it is harder to play. We like being challenged in that sense, but, um, you know, that should not, that should not, you know, inherently say, Oh, it's better because of that. Right. You know, different um, people listen to music for different reasons. Absolutely. You know what I mean? I mean, in the end though, I mean, I will say it's pretty difficult not to sound elite or pretentious when talking about it, though. But it's but be, it's because of the elements we enjoy in the music. You know what I mean? Like we right. like prog rock for the same reasons somebody likes folk music. It moves you emotionally in the end. Right. You know what I mean? But but there's another element of the brain that we attach with the music too. Right. You know what I mean? So it's like if if we all, I mean, let's say this: like if we all just assumed that most of the world aren't musically inclined you know it would be harder for someone to understand the capacity of what's happening in the music sometimes if it's if it's complex right so like for me you know i could hear like a you know a five six polyrhythm and appreciate the difficulty to perform it while someone else just would say oh yeah that's just it's just noise right you know what i mean so but in the end you know it's it's different like you know certain people that i know listen to music depending on moods right right they're just like I, i'm sad 
I want to listen to something sad, you know, right. or, you know, or I'm, you know, or I'm happy. Want to listen to something happier or whatever. Um, you know, I believe you and I, no pun intended. Um, uh-huh. We listen to music. One because obviously it moves us emotionally, and we attach to that part of the music. We, you know, we still get the goosebumps when we listen to something like, you know, when we listen to something awesome. But we also, you know, listen to music because we like being challenged, maybe as listeners, or um, maybe or or as musicians. You know, hopefully, I'm relating to somebody here uh, who's listening. But I mean, what 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 would you say to that? Yeah, I agree because it's not. It's not, but it's not all about the challenge. That's an element that I really enjoy because, you know, you and I have mentioned, uh, you know, I wasn't a big fan of the tool record, uh, and that's very difficult stuff to play. Exactly. Right. That, that's not easy to pull off. There's a lot of complexity, a lot of virtuosity in that record, but that just because of that, it does do. I I don't think that that's better. I don't have this, you know, um, so yeah, no, I, I don't think that people should have that attitude. But it reminds me of, if anyone's ever seen the movie Whiplash. Yeah. Um, there's, like, set dressing. The, the drummer is really trying to improve himself. And somewhere on his wall, right, in his dorm room or whatever, is like, I don't know, it was something along the lines of go go back to playing rock if you're not interested in jazz or something like that. This kind of, like, jazz is the best of the best. Right. And if you play rock, then you're not worthy or something like that. It was... I haven't seen the movie in a while, but I remember seeing that and thinking, okay, it's that type of superiority, that, that mentality of superiority that this kid has and that jazz is the best genre ever and that it's the toughest to play and only the best of the best get to play it or play it well, you know? Right. So, right. Um, you know, and no one should have that attitude with prog rock. I think part of the reason we really like it is, is because not only, I mean, the challenge is fun. But also because it's just it, it is artistic. They experiment with different things and different sounds, and I appreciate yeah. any type of music that can do that. Um, yeah, and successfully. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Experiment successfully. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it depends on the individual for sure. And this is yeah, this is talking from both perspectives of being like on the side of like, oh yeah, I'm a prog rock lover, but also being on the other side of somebody who might think and might not listen to this show because they think we sound like snobs. You know what I mean, and and it depends on the the individual, and but the thing is, you know, the thing that makes Prague more compelling to some is, like we've been saying, is that it's more complex and has higher technical abilities to something to a certain extent. I, for one, enjoy and listen to other genres. Now, I have nothing against other types of music. You know, Drew said he's the same as well. But when you tell someone that you mainly listen to Prague because it is more complex than other musical styles and demonstrates better technique or better creativity. Then you can easily sound like a snob, even if you aren't one. And of, of course, this perception of, you know, of the style can easily elevate elitism in people. You know, so uh-huh. for the people, let's just go ahead and address this. Like for the prog rock lovers, stop being snobs. Like, I mean, let's just call them out. Destin's calling them out. Yeah, I'm calling them out. Like for the prog rock lovers who think that prog rock's better than everything else. Like, yeah, that's your opinion, but you can't make or, it seem that it's better just because it's higher technical ability and, and and holds higher technical capacity that does not make it better so 
or that it's only fit for a certain group of people. Right. Get it. Right. Because part of the point of us doing this show is not only for the prog rockers. Um, um, We, we, you know, we hope they enjoy that this this stuff too, because they get to hear about some of their favorite records, but it's also for people who are new to it. Exactly. And I think part of the reason we, we did this was say, Hey, this is, Something that's been around for a while, but a lot of people, at least of our generation, I've noticed, yes. don't really know it. So if here's something new. You might like it. It's pretty cool stuff. Right. It's, yeah, because you know, we it's care like about any it. other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's, it's something that I, a lot of people might enjoy. They just haven't been exposed to. So. Yeah. I mean, I'm honestly like when it when it comes to the, uh, you know, the whole technical capacity and stuff like that, dude, I'm the same way with musical theater. I don't really understand what's going on because I'm not a trained vocalist. And I know that the trained vocalist in musical theater can do some incredibly complex stuff, you know, and there's a lot of complexity in musical theater. It doesn't resonate with me as much as someone who may love musical theater because of the vocal prowess that they bring. But it just, it doesn't get me. I don't understand it because I'm not a vocalist. I don't sing. So it's like, they'll do something and it's somebody else next to me be like, oh my gosh, they just did that. And I'll be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Right. Yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about. And you know, I can, I can see myself being on the other end of that. You know, and so right. it, it's it's like if you don't understand the technical capacity of it and the technical ability of it, how can you still enjoy it? That's my next right. question. Right. You know, and and that's what we we like to talk about. At least with all the records, it's like you know behind the technical capacity and stuff like that. It's still fun music to listen to. There's still elements of the music that are, uh, you know, there, there's uh, maybe a little bit more detail, or, or you you can kind of you can go into it several different times and pick stuff out of it, you know, and the stories and, and the, you know, the concept records and, um, you know, the, you know, there's, um, obviously there were members of these bands. So, you know, the bands all have kind of their own identity and stuff like that. You know, that's, that's why we listen to the, you know, just as much as somebody listens to folk music, like I said, but, you know, um, for the, for the person being on the, on the other side of, you know, uh, and most of the time, I think, and Drew, tell me if this, if you would agree with this, but most of the time, the people who uh, are on the other side of being like, oh, they they think they're elitist or whatever, are normally non musicians. They normally don't mm-hmm. play music. They normally don't have any uh, uh, musical inclination or capability. They don't play any instruments or stuff like that. And so they're mm-hmm. only looking at the music from the perspective of I'm just a listener. And I listen to music because I want to get, you know, I emotionally attach to whatever I'm hearing, I, whether it's being the the instruments or the the vocals well, or whatever. Right. You can't, and that, well, I guess maybe that's where it also gets a bit of a stigma of being elitist or whatever. You can't really listen to, to fully understand or appreciate this music. You can't listen passively. You have to listen actively. And that can sometimes be a bit of a chore, some might say. Because it's long, it's long pieces. Right. Sometimes it's a long piece of music uh, for an epic on some of the concept albums and everything, and it's hard, you know, especially in today's day and age. Everyone's busy. You know, I get it. Everyone has a schedule. It's difficult to carve out the time to, you know, sit down without any any other interruptions and and listen actively to what's going on. You know, it's hard for me now. You know, and I love music, and I've been doing this for years trying to actively listen. It's hard now. Yeah. You know. Uh, for myself included. So I, I get it. But I think maybe that's why it gets a stigma is that it's almost kind of like work in a way. In order to get out of it, you don't just listen to it on the radio or in the background and say, oh, I like that that beat or whatever. You got you to gotta put some more time in for it and everything. Hopefully, though, you get out a, a unique experience that you didn't hear with a, another type of genre or, or, or a shorter piece of music. Yeah. 
So. Yeah, I would agree. It's it's still it's it's like it's like when I when I I mean I, like when I was in film school, there were a lot of films that I watched that I totally hated when I first saw it. But, you know, we were required to pay attention and, and watch them. And then afterwards, when we discussed them, there were a lot of things I still appreciated about those films, even though I, I probably wouldn't say, yeah, that goes on my top 10 list or, yeah, I'd like to see that again. I can still appreciate a lot of different elements that the, the filmmaker was trying to convey yeah. with this medium. And uh, yeah, so anyways, it, that's, it that's can still be it say. can still be just as much of a, an experience as if, you know, of, of you going to the movies um, or, or watching a movie on your couch sometimes um and maybe that maybe that's a hard way to grasp it because people are way more inclined to spend money on visual than they are audio um you know when it when it comes to you know a t a four the 4k tv but you know the 90 the 97 hurt or the 97 you know um you know the whatever the uncompressed wave files just people just don't care you know what i mean they'd rather uh listen to right. the mp3 and uh or, or streaming off Spotify or something like that. So I get it. I get it. But you know, there's, there's a, uh, I guess you say there, there's, there's an, there's a way to be able to listen to it and, and be able to enjoy it to a certain level of, of quote unquote, an experience. Um, not, not obviously, I mean, the, you know, movies are, there's more senses involved with the movie with, with, with the movie, you got, you know, the visual and the audio. Um, and sometimes with the, you know, you can feel, you can feel it like the, you know, the bass and stuff like that in a the movie theater if something like crashes or stuff like that, you know, I, you know, um, but, uh, but yeah, it's just something to think about. And hopefully for all the, uh, prog rock lovers, you know, we can stop being snobs. So that's my, man, that's a, that's a bad way to end the episode, Drew. That's your call to action, man. I, I know, dude, know. that's, that's the call to action, but you know, <laughs> Whoa. happy, happy one year anniversary guys. We're going to, ah. Call everybody out. Let's do it. You know. Whoa! Oh my goodness. So what a thing I, to celebrate. I know it. I know it. <laughs> well, hey, we we would both uh, like to thank everybody for listening to our podcast. These are our prog notes. If you enjoyed the episode, learn something new from the episode. Please subscribe and share. Follow us on Instagram at prog underscore notes. We also appreciate all feedback and or comments. Drew, why don't you go ahead and let everybody know what's going on next episode uh the next episode that we're going to listen to uh or sorry yeah the next album we're going to listen to on next the next album, episode yeah. on the next episode is is going to be uh gentle giants debut album uh which is self-titled so it's gentle giant by gentle, gentle giant. giant new band that we're going to be listening to i'm excited I've yeah never, we have never listened to much yep. of them never listened to yeah them. So it'll be exciting. So i'm excited but they are a staple in the in the prog rock community so it'll be interesting yeah I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm curious. So sweet. Awesome. Hey, join us next time as we discover the past, present, future of prog rock. We're going to end the episode uh, with the shortest song on the album being Siberian Katru, uh, which is the song that we also opened the album with. Enjoy, and we'll see you guys next time. Thank you. Bye.
Sampsai Tower